You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been consuming a steady stream of horror movies, well, this week and pretty much the last two months. So my dreams have been crazy, but what are you gonna do? Tis the season, as long as you don't walk into a major retail store, then it's like Christmas for some reason, even though there's a holiday in the middle. But again, what are you gonna do? This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Smile, which I have been trying to get myself to go see since it came out a few weeks ago. Smile was pretty scary. It was it was a good movie, but it wasn't anything new. It was essentially a studio version of It Follows with some Oculus overtones and some Final Destination sprinkles. And if you've seen Smile and those three films, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I liked the Smiles exploration with unresolved trauma. I thought it was very well packaged, but again, it wasn't anything new. It is possible this film got a little overhyped for me, admittedly, which is always the danger of seeing a film like this, which had a strong word of mouth situation. And it's been a few weeks, so all I kept hearing was, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. It's a good movie. It's just, I'd seen it before. It just had a different name and different people in it. Also, this podcast has reawakened the parts of pretentious college Caitlin in film school, so that's not helpful either. I've become a lot more picky again, for better or for worse. Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, the gruesome true stories that inspired Jaws, the first modern summer blockbuster, and the novel it was partially based on. I sourced a lot of this information from Behind the Horror by Dr. Lee Miller, which if you loved this month's topic, I highly recommend. Got a lot of help from that book. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Great white, Larry. A big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. 1916, there were five, five people, people chewed up in the surf. In tell one them, week. Tell them about the swimmers. A shark is attracted to the exact kind of splashing and activity that occurs whenever human beings go in swimming. You cannot avoid it. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell, for Christ's sake. Look, sakes. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped throw it in. You, sh- you should have seen him. Where, where is that tooth? Did you see it, Brody? It was supposed to be an idyllic summer of beach-faring fun along the New Jersey shore. Instead, it was a fortnight of terror that frightened tourists and traumatized the citizens of the New Jersey shore for generations to come. Charles Van Sant was tall, dark, handsome, a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania who had landed a job at a prestigious brokerage firm in Philadelphia. 
Like most Philly boys who had everything going for them, the 25-year-old planned to spend his Independence Day weekend on the Jersey Shore. On July 1st, 1916, he hopped a train to meet his family at the prestigious Ingleside Hotel, a magical beach haven weekend assured. Van, as he was known by those close to him, along with his sister, went down to the beach for a pre-dinner dip in the sea. Van was immediately delighted when a golden retriever followed him down to the water. As far as I could tell, this was not his dog, it was just like a random beach dog. After gallivanting in the shallows for a bit with his new four-legged companion, Van swam past the breakers and into the sea proper, hollering at his doggy friend to follow. From the shore, a group of sunbathers reported seeing a dark mass moving toward Van. Then, a black dorsal fin emerged from the water. The sunbathers attempted to warn the young man, but from that distance, he could not decipher their frantic warnings. Then, a scream. By this point, Van was reportedly 450 feet off the shore as he frantically began paddling back to it. About 50 yards from land, his screaming became more and more frantic. Blood was reportedly spurting up and around him. The lifeguard on duty at the time, an Olympic-level swimmer, sprang into action. He managed to pull Van from the water with a reported 500-pound, 9-foot-long shark still attached to his leg. But, as the story goes, as soon as its stomach felt the land, the shark detached and returned to the sea, leaving Van in a very rough way. The young man's left leg was reportedly stripped to the bone. His right had a humongous laceration on it. The lifeguard and two locals that had also run to help Van fashioned a tourniquet to slow the bleeding and rushed him to the hotel for medical attention. But it was too late. Charles Van Sant was declared dead at 6.45 that evening. The young man died on the manager's desk of the hotel. This would eventually be declared the first shark-related death ever recorded on the east coast of the United States. Sailors out at sea that day had described seeing large sharks circling this area, which was reportedly not the rag at the time, but despite these reports, the beaches remained open, the men's concerns ignored. It was the 4th of July weekend, after all, and the area relied heavily on that tourism money. To quell locals' fears, a 300-foot net was erected to keep the man-eating sharks at bay. This was not done 45 miles up the shore in Spring Lake, where the illustrious Essex and Sussex Hotel was located. One of the bellhops was a sharp 28-year-old man named Charles Bruder, who was a Swiss expat. While on a recent vacation to the West Coast, Bruder had come up close and personal with sharks and found them to be mellow, not violent, bloodthirsty creatures like what was being reported in the news. When the news of what had happened to Charles Van Sant had actually reached that hotel, Bruder was skeptical that a shark could have been responsible. This skepticism would cost him his life. Five days after Van Sant died, Bruder and his friend Henry Nolan, an elevator operator at the hotel, decided to spend their lunch break taking a dip in the sea. Around 2.15, the two entered the employee area of the beach. They weren't allowed to fraternize with the hotel guests with some other companions. It was too cold for the majority of them, but Bruder was a seasoned swimmer and decided, like Van Zant, to swim further out. In Bruder's case, about 130 yards from the shore. There... He began to scream and thrash violently like Van had. Another swimmer reported an odd red thing in the sea. This odd red thing turned out to be blood. 
Two lifeguards boarded a rescue boat and headed to the doomed figure in the ocean as Bruder's already mutilated body was reportedly flung up into the air as he continued to scream. His right leg was completely gone. When he landed back in the water, the alleged attacking shark bit off his left foot. By the time the lifeguards reached him, he was white as a ghost and screaming, quote, A shark bit me. Bit my legs off. The lifeguards got him into the boat and, as exclaimed, Bruder's legs were completely gone. He died before he ever reached the shore. According to the New York Times, quote, Women were panic-stricken and fainted as Bruder's mutilated body was brought ashore. Watching this horror show unfold through a pair of opera glasses, a socialite staying at the hotel called the operator board and informed them that they needed to call every hotel on the Jersey Shore and get everyone out of the water. Two doctors arrived to care for Bruder, but were obviously far too late. So instead, the two cared for everyone who'd vomited and fainted while watching the young man's horrific death unfold. Guests and workers at the Essex and Sussex and other nearby hotels would raise money for Bruder's mother in Switzerland in his memory. After this second attack, overnight, the entire country was in a full shark attack panic, with the story of the Jersey man-eater making front-page news all over the country. This growing panic cost the New Jersey resort owners an estimated $250,000, which is about $6.2 million in today money, because of lost tourism, and sunbathing declined by 75% in some areas. Shark sightings increased exponentially up and down the entire eastern seaboard. Two days later, on July 8th, a panel of scientists descended on the area to try and figure out what the hell was going on while trying to explain to the vacationers that it was incredibly unlikely to be attacked by a shark, though they did admit that what had transpired was concerning. In fact, many had been hesitant to even state that Van's death was due to a shark, even though witnesses saw it, but after the second one, it became a little bit harder to be skeptical about. But if people wanted to be safe, the panel declared, they merely had to stay within the area of the ocean that was netted off. They were wrong. On July 12th, near the New York-New Jersey state line in the small town of Matawan, New Jersey, a fishing captain was returning to dock around 1.20 p.m. when he noticed a familiar gray silhouette swimming upstream in the creek. By his estimate, it was about eight feet long. The captain attempted to alert his fellow town folk of the invading beast, but nobody believed him or his crew. The town of Matawan was inland a fair bit. There's no way a shark could get to them. To warn unsuspecting thalassophiles, the captain rented a speedboat to race upstream to sound the alarm and get everybody out of the water, but got pretty much the same response as he'd had earlier. A shark in the creek? No way. The captain sped past one of the docks on his Paul Revere-esque mission moments before a group of 11 to 12-year-old boys ambled past for an afternoon of revelry at the creek. One of the boys, 11-year-old Lester Stillwell, called for his friends to watch him float in the swimming hole. Moments before, his friend Albert O'Hara would recall having felt something brush past his legs. Like the previous two times, a dorsal fin appeared out of the water, speeding toward Lester. Before he had time to react, it was too late. Lester screamed and flailed wildly before a bunch of blood stained the water and the boy disappeared beneath the surface. The other boys went screaming for help down the main drag of town, naked by the way, and found a 24-year-old businessman named Watson Stanley Fisher and his girlfriend. They frantically explained what they'd just witnessed, and the young man was skeptical they'd actually seen a shark, fair enough. 
But knowing that Lester had epilepsy, Fisher figured the boy had probably had a seizure. Shark or no, Lester was definitely in some kind of peril. In response, he rounded up some of his friends and they returned to the swimming hole, which by this point had reportedly turned blood red. The three got into a rowboat, knowing they were likely looking for the remains of Lester Stillwell, as most of the town looked on. When they couldn't locate the boy from the boat, the young men changed into their swim trunks. One of them was cut by something immediately, the other one gave up not long after that, but Fisher decided to keep trying to find the boy after seeing Lester's distraught parents on the shore. He dove deep and soon saw the boy's hauntingly still body tangled up in what he thought was a log. Fisher attempted to pull Lester to the surface, but quickly felt the razor-sharp bite of a shark snap around his leg. He released the body and attempted to swim to safety. Fisher fought his whole way back to the shore, with the shark only giving up when the local sheriff attacked it with an oar. From a boat, some of the locals threw Fisher a rope, motored him to shore, where the young man managed to pull himself out of the water, revealing a foot and a half-inch wound in the boy's leg with an estimated 10 pounds of flesh missing. They got him as stable as they could, but Fisher could not be transported via motor vehicle as the bumpy ride would almost surely kill the frail man. They'd have to wait for the train to take him. 30 minutes later, a half mile up the creek, 14-year-old Joseph and 12-year-old Michael Dunn were playing with a friend in the water when they heard people screaming warnings about the shark. Michael and their friend managed to get out of the water, but Joseph was not so lucky. The two boys watched in horror as Joseph was pulled under the water. Blood rippled out from where he disappeared. The two boys formed a human chain to try and save Joseph, and Michael managed to grab his brother's hand, miraculously tearing him away from the shark in a high-stakes game of tug-of-war. Shortly after, the boys were rescued by two men, whom rushed Joseph to the nearby bag factory to be looked over by the doctor, who'd first tended to Fisher. Joseph was less gravely injured and was taken by car to the nearest hospital, where he was treated for severe calf and ankle lacerations. Fisher was eventually picked up by the train at 5.30 p.m., but passed away a little over an hour later. The remains of Lester Stillwell rose to the surface of the water two days later. While some people were gripped with terror about these crazy deaths, others, when they heard word of this string of shark attacks, angrily took to the water to bring this man-eater to vigilante justice. Some of these brain surgeons even used dynamite and also fired guns into the water to attempt to achieve this. Why were they doing dumb shit like that? Well, they had a little bit of financial incentive. Matawan Mayor Aris B. Henderson had wanted posters made offering a $100 reward, which is about $2,500 today, to anyone who killed a shark in the creek. Despite the town's efforts, including shooting guns into the water, no sharks were captured or killed there. The resort communities up and down the Jersey Shore asked the federal government to aid local efforts to protect beaches and hunt sharks. The governor of New Jersey also offered a cash reward. And this situation ended up all the way to the top. The House of Representatives procured $5,000, which is $120,000 today, to fund killing this shark. And President Woodrow Wilson even scheduled a meeting with his cabinet to try and figure out what to do. One member suggested that the Coast Guard be mobilized to patrol the Jersey Shore and protect the beachgoers. Hundreds of innocent sharks were captured all along the East Coast as a result of these attacks. The shark hunt has been described as, quote, the largest scale animal hunt in history. 
Of everyone to take to the water on July 4th, 1916, the ones that would slay the beast, or the alleged beast that is, weren't even looking for him. Lion tamer slash taxidermist Michael Schlesser and his friend John Murphy were just doing regular fishing in Raritan Bay, which was only a few miles from where the last attacks had occurred. But they wouldn't catch fish in their net. They'd catch something far stranger. Yep, shark. The shark's tail had gotten caught in their net and was pulling their boat behind it backwards, nearly sinking the ship in the process. Schlesser took a broken oar and started smacking the beast on the head. Scrambling to get away from its assaulter, the shark became increasingly tangled in the men's net. Schlesser literally beat the odd-looking animal to death with the oar. The two waved down a larger boat for assistance, and they managed to pull the oddly muscular shark to shore. It was roughly seven and a half feet long and weighed about 350 pounds. Schlesser opened up the shark and pulled out 15 pounds of human remains and a chunk of a milk crate. The remains were officially identified, as was the type of species the shark was. It was a great white. Schlesser mounted the shark and had it placed on display in a Manhattan shop where people could pay to see the alleged New Jersey man-eater. Where this taxidermy shark is now is unknown. Also, it should be noted that it was never confirmed that this particular shark was what would become known as the Jersey Maneater, but the shark attack ceased after this day. Conspiracy theories abound to the modern day as to what actually happened during that fateful fortnight. Was it actually perpetrated by a great white shark? It has been suggested that there might have been German submarines or a weird experiment that's being kept under wraps. It's even been suggested that Schlesser planted the bones in order to claim the reward and get famous. It also can't be ruled out that more than one shark could have been responsible. Joseph Dunn would be the Jersey Man Eater's only surviving victim, and he was released from the hospital on September 15th, 1916. Now, while the shark attacks influenced quite a bit of Jaws, additional influences for the film, not the novel, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, included the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, which, if you remember from the film if you've seen Jaws, is the backstory for the character Quint, whom was based on one very real man in the book. Said backstory was a fictional point of view of the worst incident in the history of the American Navy, which Quint recounts in a poignant scene. This is that story. The USS Indianapolis had been an integral vessel when the U.S. entered World War II, going on many stealth missions and even transporting the final pieces needed to assemble Little Boy, the bomb that would be dropped on Hiroshima. Most of the crew members of the ship would not live to see the destruction that final mission wrought, due to a Japanese submarine lurking in the depths of the Philippine Sea on July 30, 1945. It only took two torpedoes to sink the mighty USS, which immediately took 300 men to the depths below upon its sinking. The remaining roughly 900 men were forced to contend with a shortage of lifeboats, jackets, and rations. The men whom lucked out and managed to don a life jacket soon found themselves adrift in oil-slick water. The surviving men who didn't manage to get into a lifeboat struggled with exposure, starvation, and dehydration. Since not all of them were able to fit in the boats, some of them were just bopping in the sea. Some men drank so much salt water, they began hallucinating, and some became so violently delusional, they began attacking their fellow crewmen or taking their own lives. As if that weren't enough, there were hella sharks around. Sharks that began attacking the men almost nonstop. 
The frequency is up for debate, but most sources I read said it was pretty regular. The men who'd kept their mental faculties were forced to watch helplessly as their fellow servicemen were picked off by the sharks. They had reportedly been drawn to the wreck by the sound of the explosions of the USS Indianapolis sinking and the smell of blood in the water. After feasting on the dead and wounded, the sharks began attacking the survivors. The number of deaths due to the shark attacks alone ranged from a few dozen to 150. This cycle continued on for about three and a half days until the ship was finally noticed as missing and a plane was sent out to locate them. Life rafts were dispatched, but the full rescue took hours and men were still eaten by sharks in the interim. Only 316 out of the 1,195 souls that had been aboard the USS Indianapolis ever saw dry land again. It remains to this day the worst American naval disaster in history. The last real-life element once again deals with Quint, whom in the novel was based on Long Island fisherman Frank Mundus, whom grew up in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. By the time he was 26 in 1951, he was an accomplished seaman who specialized in tourism. During a fishing expedition, one of his passengers caught a mako shark. Seeing dollar signs and likely being familiar with the whole shark incident that had occurred nine years before his birth, Mundus began advertising his business as, quote, monster fishing. He even started wearing a safari outfit to hype up his business. It worked. It made Frank and his family financially quite comfortable. During this new career, Frank caught seven great whites, including one that reportedly weighed 4,500 pounds, earning him a ton of press and the nickname Monster Man. Frank would take author Peter Benchley out on the water where he'd see the monster man use his mighty harpoon to slay sharks. He also witnessed Frank's unique barrel method to wear the sharks out. If you've seen Jaws, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Benchley took his experiences out on the water with Frank and turned it into the 1974 novel Jaws. Benchley had had a long fascination with sharks, having grown up in Nantucket, about 30 miles south from Cape Cod. He spent much of his life wondering about the existence of a shark that stayed in one place, feasting on a community of beachgoers. This interest peaked when the author learned about Frank and the fateful trip on the sea occurred. Six years later, while working as a freelance writer to support his young family, Benchley was approached by a Doubleday publisher to pitch book ideas, with him ultimately landing on Benchley's shark book idea, which may or may not have been partially inspired by the 1916 New Jersey shark attacks. Obviously, this became Jaws. The book would become a commercial success, though it was critically panned. Before it was even published, however, two producers at Universal Pictures had heard about Benchley's novel through Cosmopolitan magazine, which sounds like an odd thing for two middle-aged men to be reading, until you learned that one of them, David Brown's wife Helen, was actually the editor. Less weird. The book editor for the magazine had read an advanced copy of Jaws and believed that it would make a good movie. So, Brown and Richard Zanuck, the other producer, read an advanced copy of the novel in a single night. They didn't know how they were going to get this film made, but nonetheless bought the film rights for the novel in 1973, a year before the book was published. Steven Spielberg, as I'm sure most of you know, was brought aboard to direct the picture, basing his script primarily on the last 120 pages of the novel, aka the shark stuff. The first two acts of the film would be completely different than its literary counterpart. Benchley wrote the first three drafts of the script per his contract, but found himself at the time ill-equipped at the medium. It do be different. 
Benchley would later state that he merely laid the foundation of what was to come. Spielberg's first major step with the script once Benchley was done with it was to make the characters more likable and remove subplots, including one that circled around the lead committing adultery, so a 1970s audience would be more inclined to root for them. One of the first people to get their hands on the script was Howard Sackler, whom did an uncredited rewrite. Carl Gottlieb, a friend of Spielberg's and a writer on The Odd Couple at the time, would do the final round of polishes of the script and continue to do so as the film shot. This included augmenting the character of Quint Slightly, whose background about being aboard the USS Indianapolis had reportedly originally been added by Sackler. It is not present in the novel. In fact, there's a bit of controversy surrounding who did what for that scene, as far as, like, script goes. Spielberg claims it was a collaboration between Sackler, John Milius, whom did dialogue punch-ups on the script, also uncredited, and the actor whom played Quint, Robert Shaw, who was also a playwright. According to Spielberg, Milius turned Sackler's, quote, three-quarters of a page speech into a full-blown monologue, and that was then tweaked by Shaw. Gottlieb gives primary credit to Shaw, downplaying Milius's contribution. That's, like, probably the heart of this film. It's a hell of a scene. I, I'd want credit, too, if I worked on that script. Be like, no, that was me. That was definitely me. I did the very, very big, important scene in Jaws. So, where do the New Jersey shark attacks and the events in Jaws overlap? In more places than you think, and more in the film than in the novel. For one, after the first attack occurred, in both situations, the beaches were not closed down for fear of losing those vital tourist dollars. These coastal communities relied heavily on the business of the summer months, which was why they stayed open despite a series of gruesome deaths occurring. Also, this whole thing was incredibly unusual, as sharks tend to avoid humans. I get it, sharks. I really do. Next, the frequency of shark attacks was similar. Like in the movie, the first two victims in 1916 were killed within a week of each other. In the film, the shark kills a man and then swims into a nearby estuary, similar to how the 1916 shark swam into the creek. Also, the masses taking to the sea and doing all manner of dumb shit to try and kill sharks occurred both in the film and in real life. In the movie, Brody, which is Roy Scheider's character, uses a rifle to shoot a scuba tank that he shoved into the shark's mouth, causing it to explode. This was way more successful than anything anybody did in 1916. Quint's speech is nearly 100% historically accurate to what happened with the USS Indianapolis. The only part of the speech that wasn't true was when he talked about bumping into his friend, quote, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland, whose bobbing body had been bitten in half. There was no one named Herbie Robinson on board the USS Indianapolis. This description in the film, however, is strikingly similar to testimonies given by the survivors. And finally, of course, the similarity between the film and all the stories is the yellow barrels used to tire the shark out in the climax of the film was directly inspired by Frank Mundus. Now, again, this is another one, a great one to discuss, like how everything can go wrong in a shoot. But this is a story podcast theme month thing. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Jaws's production was a bit of a troubled one. The shark sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean on the very first day of shooting. And everything was so wonky that the crew would actually nickname the production Flaws. But the film would be a cinematic smash, becoming the highest grossing film of all time, a record that would be broken a few years later by another Steven Spielberg film, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, in 1982. 
Jaws did something else incredibly important. Its success changed the entire way people went to the movies and the way they were marketed. Jaws was the first major motion picture to be extensively marketed on television. Also, the film was released in June 1975. Back at this time, most movies made the big bucks in the winter time. From Jaws to this day, the summertime is when the majority of the big money movies come out. It is summer blockbuster season because of Jaws. Before that, it was wintertime. Also, like the real New Jersey shark attacks had, its cinematic counterpart was also to blame for low beach attendance in 1975, as well as the increase in shark sightings that summer. The film was also blamed for the widespread negative stereotypes about sharks and their appetites, as well as for creating the, quote, Jaws effect, which inspired fishermen to do tournaments and kill thousands of sharks in the process. I think those are just called opportunistic douchebags, but sure, let's blame the movie. Benchley later stated that he would have not written the original novel had he known what sharks were really like in the wild, aka not man-eating monsters that conservation groups to this day still struggle to convince the public that they should be protected. In 2001, Benchley told a New York Times reporter that he did not use the 1916 New Jersey shark attacks as an inspiration, despite it being widely cited. Guessing this was some, you know, he was definitely aware of it. It it might have been an unconscious thing, but come on. I'm guessing this was probably, he was very, he was a much older man. I'm guessing this was some remorse given what had happened as a result of the book and the film, but... I, you know, and I, I, I feel for him for that. In fact, Benchley actually spent a lot of his final years writing nonfiction books about the majesty of sharks and the sea in general as like, I'm guessing some kind of like penance. It's not his fault that people are assholes, but I, I get I get why he would feel responsible. He's not, but I get it. Despite Benchley's claims over 20 years ago, the 1916 shark attacks are still cited as an inspiration for Jaws, the actual film. This is likely because in the movie, Roy Scheider's character urges the mayor to close the beaches, declaring, quote, there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents, two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916. Five people chewed up on the surf. Jaws remains a pinnacle of American cinema. You can even visit the silver screen Jaws, whose name is Bruce, named after Spielberg's lawyer, as he currently calls the Academy Museum of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in Los Angeles home. One thing you won't need to see him is a bigger boat. 1,100 men went into the water. Vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know. You know that when you're in the water, Chief, you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. Shark comes the nearest man, that man, he start pounding, hollering, and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living. 
until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. If you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also Buy Me a Coffee. Laura M., thank you so much for donating. I got a a lavender latte this morning. I very much appreciate that. So cheers. And I also wanted to say um, Felipe from, I believe it was Portugal. Thank you so much for your very kind email, which I finally managed to get some time to check this week. Trying to get better about that. It was very sweet. Thank you very much. It still blows my mind that people I don't know from places I've never been actually listen to me talk about stuff, which is, you know, the dream of a blabbermouth. But here we are. Um, (laughs) I've also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we uncover the true history of America's most famous ghost hunters, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and how their cases inspired one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.